Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about a topic that a number of you reached out to me to ask to have discussed in virtual legality in this space. On your screen, you can see the logo for Facebook, which means, of course, we're going to talk about the big lawsuit that former President Trump filed against Facebook. Now, it's my understanding, based on his press conference yesterday and I'm some other reports that he also filed a lawsuit against Twitter. But this is the complaint that we have in front of us. Unfortunately, a lot of reporters, a lot of journalistic outlets don't actually put the complaint in their articles when they're talking about them. So I wasn't able to look at this yesterday, but we can discuss it today. And to be honest with you, it's quite a mishmash of legal theories and concepts, some of which might sound intuitively attractive, and we'll talk about why that might be, but almost all of which are going to face basically insurmountable hurdles, at least at the trial court and court of appeals levels before you would get to the Supreme Court if it indeed got that far. So without further ado, let's take a look at what's in this lawsuit. I'm not going to be covering every little bit of it. There's a number of pages that are devoted to things that congressmen and women said, to things that Facebook said, to things that Dr. Fauci said that aren't terribly useful to analyzing the actual legal theory here such as it is. So we'll be skipping some of the details there, but I think you'll find it interesting because there are a number of things that are asserted here uh, that aren't exactly a great match for what's current United States jurisprudence on the issue of, most specifically, the First Amendment. Now, as we can see here just from the caption, this was filed in the Southern District of Florida by Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States, as a class action complaint for a First Amendment violation against Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. Now, there's a couple of things happening just in that caption that are interesting, not the least of which is that when you sign up with Facebook, you agree to what is a fairly standard venue provision uh, for any claim, cause of action, or dispute you have against us that arises out of or relates to these terms or the Facebook products, you agree that it will be resolved exclusively in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California or a state court located in San Mateo County. Like so many contracts and terms and conditions that we have looked at in this space, you agree with respect to someone else's product to sue them in a specific place, generally speaking, their home base, what's easiest for them to get to logistically. Note, that's not the Southern District of Florida. Now, Trump's team tries to establish that that's okay later on. Uh, due to the nature of it being a very big class action, I think that that's likely to face some headwinds. Um, and I think that if this were to go forward, it would probably be moved over to California. But uh, we just don't know. And it kind of goes to the nature of this particular complaint as a little bit more of a political document than a legal one. There's a lot of references to how Facebook is trying to keep Republicans down and to enforce Democratic edicts and things like that. Uh, and so this kind of goes along with that. We'll also point out that California, and more specifically its Court of Appeals, the Ninth Circuit, isn't the greatest forum for bringing a claim like this due to a case that they decided all of a year ago. And we'll get to that in this video as well. But just assuming that that's just an easily rectifiable mistake, which it may or may not be. Let's move on to the actual substance here. So first, Plaintiff Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States, individually and on behalf of those similarly situated putative class members, which is legal for the potential members of this class, we will see that he is including in this complaint everybody that's used and been censored by Facebook since I think it's early 2018, and in order to establish a class action, you have to show to the court that everybody's basically got the same legal questions in front of them. Now, interestingly, this complaint will actually go into a few areas where the legal question is specific to the president of the United States at the time. So he makes a fairly poor class leader for this purpose because he is going to have those distinct legal questions and the law doesn't like to shove people with distinct questions together. You have to establish that your class is mostly going to have the same kind of thing that it's going to be adjudicated at the court level. So that's already an interesting problem, but we haven't even gotten to the theory. That's in paragraph three. Defendant Facebook has increasingly engaged in impermissible censorship resulting from threatened legislative action, a misguided reliance upon Section 230 of the Communications Act, what we usually call 
230 CDA or CDA 230, referring to the Communications Decency Act, which added to the overall Communications Act, and willful participation in joint activity with federal actors. Defendant Facebook's status thus rises beyond that of a private company to that of a state actor. As such, defendant is constrained by the First Amendment right to free speech in the censorship decisions it makes regarding its users. That's the nut issue here. That's the crux of what former President Donald Trump and his putative class is arguing here. And it's all based on this premise that Facebook has somehow become the government. Why is that necessary? Well, because as we've talked about in this space, the First Amendment, which is what this claim is brought under, doesn't talk about private actors. In fact, it says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Now, that's been interpreted to include virtually everything that the state, meaning the United States, the federal government, or an individual government entity, either at the state level, potentially local, that those individuals acting under the color of state law, capital S, government, can't do things to abridge the freedom of speech. But notably, it doesn't extend to private actors. In a case in 1982, Luger, we can see this. We're going to come back to the Luger case uh, because of some other jurisprudence that comes out of the Supreme Court only a couple of years ago. But we see this described as follows. As a matter of substantive constitutional law, the state action requirement reflects judicial recognition of the fact that most rights secured by the Constitution are protected only against infringement by governments. Careful adherence to the state action requirement preserves an area of individual freedom by limiting the reach of federal law and federal judicial power. It also avoids imposing on the state, its agencies or officials, responsibility for conduct for which they cannot fairly be blamed. A major consequence is to require the courts to respect the limits of their own power as directed against state governments and private interests. Whether this is good or bad policy, it is a fundamental fact of our political order. So you don't have to agree with the way the U.S. Constitution is laid out, even if you're a U.S. citizen, but it is laid out in this way where the amendment at issue here talks about Congress, talks about the state, talks about the government. So when you are making a claim that somebody like Facebook, which is ostensibly just a technology company, obviously they're big, they have a lot of market penetration, they are under investigation by who knows how many regulatory agencies at this point is still a private actor. It's not its own government. It's not the United States government or any agency thereof. And so you have to try to make these kind of attenuated claims. So you say, okay, threaten legislative action. The existence of Section 230 and joint activity are what we're basing it on. Now, why do they add some of that stuff? Well, because only a couple of years ago, there's a pretty killer case that would speak against Donald Trump and his class's claims here. And that's Manhattan Community Access Corporation versus Halleck. And this was decided June 2019. So just about two years ago. It says this state action case concerns the public access channels on Time Warner's cable system in Manhattan. The question here is whether that particular public access channel named MNN, even though it is a private entity, nonetheless is a state actor when it operates the public access channels. In other words, is operation of public access channels on a cable system a traditional, exclusive public function? And in case you're keeping score at home on the politics of the Supreme Court, it's notable that this decision that will make Trump's case significantly harder was made by Kavanaugh, Roberts, Thomas Alito, and Gorsuch with Sotomayor, Ginsburg, Breyer, and Kagan dissenting. Now, they would have dissented to this particular opinion because of the fact that in this case, MNN, the public access network, was actually licensed for that service by, I believe it's the state of New York. So there's actually a direct contractual relationship between a government entity and a private entity here. But note that the Supreme Court ultimately decides in this case that even that contractual licensing arrangement doesn't rise to the level of causing the public forum here to be a state actor. Or as the court says, under the court's cases, a private entity can qualify as a state actor in a few limited circumstances, including, for example, when the private entity performs a traditional exclusive public function, when the government compels the private entity to take a particular action, and when the government acts jointly 
with the private entity. And that's that Luger case that we'll come back to in just a second. Here, the main argument was made that MNN was performing a public function. And we see the court dismiss that a little further on. When a private entity provides a forum for speech, the private entity is not ordinarily constrained by the First Amendment because the private entity is not a state actor. The private entity may thus exercise editorial discretion over the speech and speakers in the forum. The decision stated above reflects a common sense principle. Providing some kind of forum for speech is not an activity that only governmental entities have traditionally performed. In short, merely hosting speech by others is not a traditional exclusive public function and does not alone transform private entities into state actors subject to First Amendment constraints. If the rule were otherwise, all private property owners and private lessees who open their property for speech, of any kind really, would be subject to First Amendment constraints and would lose the ability to exercise what they deem to be appropriate editorial discretion within that open forum. Now, notably here, that sets an important standard. You've got a company that licenses directly from the government for its authority to do what it does. And the Supreme Court says that's not good enough to make them a state actor for this purpose, that they are so concerned, the majority here, that the First Amendment would be applied to private editorial decision-making that they kill it even where there's this contractual relationship, which does not exist as between Twitter, the government, and Facebook, and the government, at least as far as we know, and certainly as far as complained about in former President Trump's complaint. So they want to get outside of this precedent that is just talking about whether an exclusive function was performed. So they want to get into a different place. Remember that highlighted phrase that I just showed was that it's if it's acting as that public forum alone, it's not good enough to be treated as a state actor. So we need to add something to it. So it's we want to say that it's been compelled by the government. We want to say that it's a jointly made effort by Facebook and the government if we're trying to win this case. And that's exactly what they do here. Unfortunately for them, those standards are pretty darn high. That Luger case that talks about joint action says, well, we're talking about joint action in the context of somebody actually seizing property. When private misuse of a state statute does not describe conduct that can be attributed to the state, the procedural scheme created by the statute obviously is the product of state action. So the existence of Section 230 could be, but you still need to have a state actor involved. We have consistently held that a private party's joint participation with state officials, I think it's the sheriff here, in the seizure of disputed property is sufficient to characterize that party as a state actor for purposes of the 14th Amendment. There's a couple of requirements here. It has to be related to something the government can't do. And for this particular case, it has to be jointly done with a government official. So you actually have to have a government figure working with you to accomplish something. It's not just kind of hinted at around the edges. Similarly, if we look at the Bloom case, which might offer a better strategy for the Trump campaign here or the the Trump complaint. First, although it is apparent that nursing homes in New York are extensively regulated, the mere fact that a business is subject to state regulation does not by itself convert its action into that of the state. So we're starting out early. We're not even to the coercive pressures yet, but we also note right here that the Supreme Court and the judicial system in general has not said that even regulated industries become state actors due to that regulation. And when we're talking about Facebook and Twitter and big technology in general, we are very much not talking about regulated industries. In fact, when we look at the language of 230, there are recitals in there where Congress basically says, we are making this so that we don't regulate anything that happens on the internet. That's going to be a problem for the case presented by former President Trump and his purported class. Continuing with Bloom here, there is a sufficiently close nexus between the state and the challenged action of the regulated entity so that the action of the latter may be fairly treated as that of the state itself. That's a requirement. You have to have something that the state did that has a close enough nexus. That's a legal term of art, but it has to be close enough to what the state did and then what the private actor did to conflate the two, to say it was the state that actually did this thing. The purpose of this requirement, as the court says, is to assure that constitutional standards are invoked only when it can be said that the state is responsible for the specific conduct at issue here. And a state normally can be held responsible for a private decision only 
when it has exercised coercive power or has provided such significant encouragement, either overt or covert, that the choice must in law be deemed to be that of the state. Mere approval of or acquiescence in the initiatives of a private party is not sufficient to justify holding the state responsible for those initiatives. So the state can do a lot of stuff. It can be in favor of what you're deciding to do. It can even recommend that you do it. If it's not coercive, if it's not such significant encouragement that it's really the state's decision, you don't wind up in a place where a private actor is treated as a state actor and subject to First Amendment concerns. So while this is probably a better concept than the joint concept, in theory, you still have massive, massive hurdles and a general reluctance to have this enforced against a private actor. And in case 2019, as a Supreme Court precedence is a little too old for you, we actually covered this issue not too long ago in 2020 when YouTube was sued by PragerU, Prager University versus Google and YouTube. This is the Ninth Circuit. That's that Western circuit that would have been covered as an appeals court had President Trump filed his complaint in California as the Facebook terms of service required him to do that dismissed a claim. The panel affirmed the district court's dismissal of an action brought against YouTube and its parent company, Google, by a nonprofit educational and media organization alleging a violation of the First Amendment. Addressing the First Amendment claims, the panel held that despite YouTube's ubiquity and its role as a public-facing platform, it remains a private forum, not a public forum subject to judicial scrutiny under the First Amendment. The panel noted that just last year, the Supreme Court held that merely hosting speech by others is not a traditional exclusive public function and does not alone transform private entities into state actors subject to First Amendment constraints. The panel held that the internet does not alter the state action requirement of the First Amendment. So you've got a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision from 2020, you've got a Supreme Court decision from 2019, and you've got the attempt made in the complaint by Trump and his associates here to try to establish that we're not just talking about exclusive state action, we're instead talking about coercion from the government and joint participation. So we have to dive a little bit deeper into the complaint to see what in the heck they're talking about and whether or not they've got a chance of success on this. Continuing with the complaint, we're all the way up to paragraph four now. Legislation passed 25 years ago intended to protect minors from the transmission of obscene materials on the internet and to promote the growth and development of social media companies has enabled defendant Facebook to grow into a commercial giant. Now that's framing of CDA 230, a common topic here in virtual legality. And while it was a part of a general obscenity measure, Congress in its recitals is pretty specific that it's about more than just protecting kids from those obscenities. In fact, in recital three here, we see the internet and other interactive computer services offer a forum for a true diversity of political discourse, unique opportunities for cultural development, and myriad avenues for intellectual activity. And it is the policy of the United States to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet and other interactive computer services unfettered by federal or state regulation. Now, the Trump complaint here will try to make this particular law, which admittedly has its flaws. You can go into virtual legality. You can see us talking about 230, how it's used, how it could potentially be reformed. That has its flaws, but as a regulatory measure, instead of, as recited here, something where Congress is trying to say, internet, you can be the Wild West. We want to make sure you're not liable for the decisions you make here. We want you to have the editorial power, but we're not going to dictate it to you unfettered by federal or state regulation. We want to preempt the field for what the states might elect to do against you. And so we make this law and the Trump complaint here tries to establish that it is essentially unconstitutional. Defendants extended their conditional and unconstitutional prior restraint of plaintiff's right to free speech as a private citizen until at least January of 2023, speaking of President Trump's ban, and using unconstitutional authority delegated to them by Congress Defendants have also mounted an aggressive campaign of censorship. Now, that in and of itself, again, is this kind of mismatch, right? If you want to say Congress doesn't have the authority to do something like censor speech, which it doesn't under the First Amendment, it can't really delegate that power. It doesn't have the authority. So at bare minimum, this is kind of phrased incorrectly. You're trying to say Congress doesn't have the power to do something to advantage censorship at a private level. And so that in and of itself is unconstitutional, but... You wind up with a discussion of authority here 
and 230, which in its own recitals doesn't talk about specific speech, talks about unfettered internet access, etc. Plaintiff respectfully asks this court to declare that Section 230 on its face is an unconstitutional delegation of authority, that the law on its face that has otherwise been enforced for years, decades now, is unconstitutional. And that, at bare minimum, is something that would have to rise to the Supreme Court to see victory on. Continuing on, we go through jurisdiction and venue, which we've already explained might be an issue given the contract terms that President Trump and his class have agreed to. We see a description of the class as all Facebook platform users who have resided in the United States between June 1st, 2018 and today and had their Facebook accounts censored by defendants and were damaged thereby. We then get a description of how Facebook operates. We get some interesting notes here within two minutes of one another. Facebook and Twitter suspended President Trump, which is interesting except that this complaint doesn't actually argue some kind of conspiracy or other violation. So it's more a colorful aside than useful to actually analyzing the legal issue here. And we get a description of what happened this year with respect to Facebook's oversight board. Facebook's own oversight board concluded that the January 21st indefinite platforming of President Trump lacked any basis in its existing consistently applied community standards. Now, I did a video on this particular decision. And in fact, I said that the Facebook Oversight Board found Facebook's action to be indeterminate and standardless. But I don't know that I would characterize what they said in their report as lacked any basis. In fact, if we go to the Oversight Board's report, the first key finding is the board found that the two posts by Mr. Trump on January 6th severely violated Facebook's community standards and Instagram's community guidelines. What they had an issue with, the oversight board, was the indeterminate nature of it, that that's not the way these kinds of things should go. Not that Facebook didn't have any basis at all for applying its rules in the way that it did. So you've got a lot of political speech here. You've got a lot of red meat for journalists and various blogs and things like that, but it's probably not the way I would actually describe things to the court, because the more that you kind of over embellish and overemphasize, the less likely the courts is to listen to you on other things that you're going to bring before it. Then we get to plaintiff's use of Facebook platform. When plaintiff utilized his Facebook account in his official capacity as president, it became an important outlet for news organizations and the U.S. government, and his Facebook account operated as a public forum serving a public function. Now, now this is interesting. They don't actually kind of flesh this out through the complaint. This appears to be a reverse of when President Trump got in trouble with bans on Twitter, where the courts held that he couldn't just block people because it was a public forum serving a public function when he did it. That's distinct from the question of whether Twitter or Facebook can kick him off because President Trump was, of course, president of the United States and serving specifically as a state actor versus Facebook and Twitter. This would be a problem if this theory were kind of fleshed out and found by the court to be correct, because if we imagine that any place where any state actor appears and speaks is suddenly transformed into a location that has to abide by every constitutional amendment, that could be an issue. And frankly, it might be an issue for actual dissemination of communication because local bars or billboard companies or whoever would say, no, no, we don't want any of you talking in any of our spaces because we don't want to have the U.S. Constitution applied to our own decisions, whether or not to kick you out of our restaurant or otherwise to editorialize on our own material. So this is interesting. It also highlights, of course, the fact that this is a pretty bad class action because the president of the United States has completely different functionality and different legal questions than everybody else in the class. But obviously, former President Trump wanted to lead this class, wanted this to be something he could have a press conference about. And OK, we get to Section 3. Democratic legislators coerced defendants to censor the plaintiff and putative class members. Again, we're getting into those areas where somebody has researched some of the Supreme Court precedent, including most specifically Bloom and said, okay, they need to be coercive. We're going to make the case for it to be coercion. Democratic legislators in Congress feared plaintiff's skilled use of social media as a threat to their own re-election efforts. Okay, great. So we're already starting out with a little puffery, which isn't terribly useful to a legal document. But then you do see quotes that they put for a number of pages that explain what they're thinking. But I do think that for the privilege of 230, there has to be a bigger sense of responsibility on it. And it is not out of the question that that could be removed. Representative Nancy Pelosi, April 12th. The idea that it's a tech company is that Section 230 should be revoked, immediately should be revoked, number one, for Zuckerberg and other platforms. That's, in fact, Joe Biden's New York Times interview that we've discussed in this space a number of times. You get pages and pages and pages of this, finishing off with 
There's no constitutional protection for using social media to incite an insurrection. Trump is willing to do anything for himself, no matter the danger to our country. His big lies have cost America dearly. And until he stops, Facebook must ban him, which is to say forever. Now, that's a tweet from a representative. That's a person that has state power, but it doesn't actually threaten or coerce in some fashion. It's an advocacy position. I would see Facebook ban him. And you don't have to like any of this, but we're talking about a very important constitutional question, which is whether Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook are acting as an arm of the government. And that's a high hurdle to clear. They talk further about coercive measures as appearing in these various congressional testimony requirements. With this coercion directed at defendants by repeatedly requiring their appearance at hearings and reinforcing their potential to impose regulations and strip them of 230 immunity, Democrat legislators intended to force defendants into permanently banning plaintiff's access to his Facebook account, his followers, and the public at large. The ancillary benefit was to deny the public access to plaintiff's content and views. So this case is premised around, we're calling you in for congressional hearings. We're saying things on Twitter. We're talking about potentially Section 230 going away, which by the way, if you're former President Trump and his class, is something that you are asking to be ruled unconstitutional in any event. So the threat to have it removed should be seen as something that is akin to the Constitution if you actually believe this theory that you've presented in this complaint, but that all of those things were designed to force Facebook to make decisions that were what the government wanted to do. Now, that I think is intuitively something that you might understand, that the government could potentially make statements or make offers that are so coercive as to amount to essentially orders to do something. But as we just talked about, even the case law that they're relying upon here finds that regulated industries, things that actually already have rules that are constantly changed that govern the way an industry works, doesn't rise to this level of being a state actor. So just bringing them in to have antitrust conferences, to talk about Section 230, to talk about changes that Congress might make, doesn't appear on its face to rise anywhere near the level that would be required to effectively say that there was actual coercion. If you had something that was an email that said, Facebook, you ban Donald Trump or else we're going to impose regulations that are going to cost you a billion dollars or something, then maybe you could make this case. But just calling them in to talk to Congress, just having tweets that say, maybe we should look at 230 reform, isn't the kind of thing that rises to the level of being a state actor, in my view, of course, and Supreme Court can change that, of course. Probably not the lower courts who are bound by all the Supreme Court precedent that we have read as part of this video and what makes a case like this so darn difficult to bring. You see similar language throughout the complaint, the legislators who pressured defendants to censor, to censor plaintiff and putative class members uh, with plaintiff removed from Facebook. It is considerably more difficult for plaintiff to act as the head of the Republican Party, framing it as a political decision. The problem is you still need that nexus, right? If Facebook hates Republicans and decided to kick Donald Trump because he's a Republican, that's still pretty much within Facebook's power. So you've got an issue, not just with proving that the state, the government has done something. You probably also have an issue with establishing that it's not something that Facebook or Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't have done completely on their own in any event. And that's a concept that isn't addressed in this complaint at all. You see, in addition to coercion in section four here, the concept of encouragement. Remember that Bloom standard, right? A state normally can be held responsible for a private decision only when it has exercised coercive power. We saw their attempt to establish coercion and has provided such significant encouragement that the choice must in law be deemed to be that of the state. If you actually go and look at these cases that are cited for this proposition, mostly the court doesn't find that to be the case. The court finds it to be other than state action because it really has to be obvious that the state has effectively ordered this thing. And if they haven't, you don't rise to the level where you can bring a case like this. It is this congressional legislation, Section 230, commonly referred to as the Good Samaritan provision that Facebook relies on to censor constitutionally permissible free speech. Now, now we have to talk about CDA 230, and this is probably the most misunderstood statute on the internet. You can go and look up 230 on this channel to see more robust discussions of all of it. But 
as just one side note here, there's a fundamental problem with this claim on 230. So you've got this law, you've got these recitals that we read, and it does two things. It says, no provider of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another, which means that Twitter isn't liable for whatever defamatory thing Joe Bob or Mary or whoever says on their service, that Twitter isn't responsible for that. You can't sue Twitter over that. The other component, which is at issue in this particular case, is that no provider of an interactive computer service, Facebook, shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that Facebook considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, otherwise objectionable, whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. Now, the Trump complaint here reads this as if this statute didn't exist Facebook wouldn't be allowed to remove this stuff because it would be constitutionally protected. But remember, the First Amendment and the Constitution in general only protects against actions by state actors. So let's pretend CDA 230 doesn't exist. Let's also take a look at the Facebook Terms of Service, which says, hey, we can remove or restrict access to content that is in violation of anything that we draft up, including pretty darn vague community standards, anything that we determine to be misleading or discriminatory or fraudulent. And the real kicker, anything that we determine is reasonably necessary to remove to avoid or mitigate adverse legal or regulatory impacts on Facebook. We can look at it and say, yeah, you know what? This looks like it might be something bad. And if it might be something bad, somebody somewhere might decide to regulate us. And if somebody somewhere might decide to regulate us in a way that we don't like, we can just remove or restrict access to Facebook. That they have all this language in their terms of service that says, you know what, end of the day, we can kick you off if we want to. And that's the same at YouTube. That's the same at Twitter. That's the same everywhere. And you don't have to like it. Part of what we do here in virtual legality is to show you in the terms of service where these platforms and other technology service providers retain all this power so that you understand that you really are on a third party platform. And for the most part, they can do what they want. So you've entered into a contract with them. And if 230 doesn't exist, if they don't have this protection, they still have the contractual right to remove you. Why? Because they said they do. And because they're not a state actor, especially because if you're trying to rely on the existence of 230 for establishing some kind of state action nexus, if it doesn't exist, then Facebook isn't relying upon it at all. This is kind of a mirror complaint to what we've seen with respect to the DMCA, right? If you haven't been following those cases, you have DMCA takedown notices that somebody like YouTube follows, and then you have people do the counter notice procedure in the DMCA, and YouTube sometimes doesn't put it back up. And they say, well, they have to. It's like, no, it's not a requirement. That law doesn't establish requirements. Instead, it says, if you do put it back up after you get this notice and this counter notice, et cetera, et cetera, you won't be liable for certain things. YouTube looks at that, anybody else looks at that and says, what would I be liable for? What exactly would Facebook be liable for, for removing anything from its service? Remember, when we actually looked at this issue with respect to MNN, it wasn't that they were an internet company. In fact, they aren't that prevented the court from imposing First Amendment requirements on them. It was just that if the rule were otherwise, all private property owners would be subject to First Amendment constraints and would lose the ability to exercise what they deem to be appropriate editorial discretion. So this is a protected concept by the court without Section 230. So if 230 isn't required, it's hard to establish that Facebook relies on it to censor, which it does, based on constitutionality concerns. So they want to see 230 go away, but they don't create that actual legal argument as to why Facebook is relying upon it for this purpose when they've otherwise reserved the right to remove things. And court decisions across the country have determined that Facebook, generally speaking, doesn't need to worry about violating the First Amendment. Neither plaintiff nor putative class members were free to decline the speech restrictions imposed by Facebook in its terms of service if they wish to use the Facebook platform. That's undoubtedly true. You have to accept the terms of service when you accept service from any of these particular platforms. But that's the cost of doing business. You have to agree to allow Twitter to do what it wants or Facebook to do what it wants, and you don't have to like it. You can see that there are certain folks that are out there looking to potentially make these public forums, these platforms into common carriers or similar kind of concepts that will have a more generalized obligation and really functionally be closer to a state actor 
in that particular structure. But right now, they're just companies. And if you want to use Facebook, you have to agree. If Facebook wants to put in its terms of service, we're going to ban all Republicans or we're going to ban all Democrats. And you agree to use the platform, then that's what you agreed to. They're a private platform. And presumably, if they have those large bans, they're not as attractive of a place to be. But it's within their power, absent some showing of actual coercion, actual joint participation, actual encouragement that makes it the government's action when they decide to do something. So we don't have a great argument with respect to 230. We don't have a great argument with respect to coercion. We might have a slightly better argument with respect to joint action, but again, it's not a great one. Let's look at section five. Defendants' willful participation in joint activity with federal actors to censor plaintiff and the putative class members. So we're in Lugerland now. The CDC has publicly stated that it works with social media partners, the CDC, Center for Disease Control, being a government arm, including Facebook, to curb the spread of vaccine misinformation. In a document dated October 11th, 2019, the CDC expressly stated that it was engaging partners to contain the spread of vaccine misinformation and specifically states that the CDC would work with social media companies to that end. Okay, we've got a little bit of a story now, right? You've got a government arm, a government agency saying we're going to work with private actors to curb what we determine to be misinformation. Okay, you're starting to sound like maybe there's something there. Facebook is among the social media partners referred to by the CDC. Defendants, Facebook, work directly and in concert with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, to advance only the narrative that defendants and Dr. Fauci subscribe to. Okay, problem. <laughs> so again, if you want to say that somebody is a state actor and you want to say that they're working jointly with somebody, you probably have to address the concern that the defendants believe these things already. If they're just having a conversation with Dr. Fauci or with whomever, he says, hey, I want to get this information out there. Maybe he even says, I, I want to get misinformation off there. And Facebook says, yeah, we want to do that too. If Dr. Fauci isn't affecting the removal of that misinformation, he's not the one putting a lien on that property in the same manner that we see in Luger. It's just kind of a conversation. You have to rise to a fairly high level because the Supreme Court is very concerned about applying the Constitution to private actors. They then put forth a number of emails where we see one from Mark Zuckerberg in March of 2020 saying, hey, I want you to think about doing a Q&A video with us. Uh, they respond and say, yeah, that could be something that we want to do. Fauci says, yep, I'm interested in doing that. Talk to White House comms if you want to do this. Uh, and then we're talking about how this is going to happen. Um, the policy clarifies that what Facebook means by false in their COVID and vaccine policy is not actual or factual falsity, but rather whether the claim contradicts or challenges the pronouncements or recommendations propounded by public health authorities, including the CDC. And we've talked about that in this space. I think there's some fairly dumb appeal to authority things that have happened over the past couple of years where the Facebooks of the world and the YouTubes of the world have basically said, you have to align with what certain folks are saying at certain institutions, even when they change day by day or month by month. And that includes things all over the spectrum of discussion on COVID or health in general, vaccines and what have you. But Facebook appears to have made that determination basically on its own. And you're going to have to, if you're President Trump, show that Facebook did this essentially with uh, Dr. Fauci, with the CDC on its order. You're probably going to have to get to something like a nexus because otherwise it looks like you reached out to them to ask for them to be a part of your video series, which obviously brings more eyeballs to your platform. They agreed to do so. And you also said, hey, we're going to get rid of all the other information that contradicts what you're saying. Is that an order from the state government? It's not obvious in this complaint that it is, but it's closer in my view than saying that bringing people at Facebook in front of Congress is somehow directly coercive or directly encouraging that would require you to get to that state actor assumption. We can see that a little better in the next paragraph, which says a senior official in the Biden administration has stated that the White House has been involved in direct engagement with social media companies, specifically including Facebook to remove so-called COVID or vaccine misinformation, and Facebook has publicly confirmed that it assists the White House in achieving this objective. And again, that's fine, but the White House itself, the Biden administration itself, Dr. Fauci himself, isn't actually the one that's making the bans, that's killing the misinformation. It might be something that they like to do, but as we saw with Bloom here, 
Mere approval of or acquiescence in the initiatives of a private party is not sufficient to justify holding the state responsible for those initiatives. So we just have problem after problem after problem with the logic here, even though it can be somewhat intuitively understood. You say, okay, I can see how you got here, but that doesn't match the jurisprudence that is currently at the heart of First Amendment discussions of this type. Plaintiff and putative class members posts about, for instance, uh, I never pronounced this right, hydroxychloroquine were censored by Facebook as only the narrative crafted by Dr. Fauci and IAID and the CDC was allowed on Facebook. Again, that's fine. Facebook made that determination. You have to show that that's something that the government mandated, coerced, encouraged expressly or otherwise acted with you on. And just having them on video and things like that probably doesn't rise to that level. You get another discussion of the oversight board. Then you get a bunch of references to what might otherwise be plaintiffs in the class, uh, including uh, one that kind of goes on the emotional side of things where they say uh, someone found their brother dead because they weren't allowed to access Facebook and they wonder whether Facebook would have allowed them to prevent that death, etc., etc. And those are all well and good, uh, but they really aren't the focus of this complaint. In fact, the focus is very much on President Trump's complaint rather than establishing a class action. So we get the two counts now. Count one, violation of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Pursuant to Section 230, defendants are encouraged and immunized by Congress to censor constitutionally protected speech. Using its authority under Section 230, together and in concert with other social media companies, the defendants regulate the content of speech over a vast swath of the internet. Defendants are vulnerable to and react to coercive pressure from the federal government to regulate specific speech and in censoring the specific speech at issue in this lawsuit and deplatforming plaintiff, defendants were acting in concert with federal officials, including officials at the CDC and the Biden transition team. So that's exactly what they said in paragraph three. So at least they held together their thesis of the case from beginning to end. But we have all the problems that we've already articulated in this video. And I don't see a way in which they're going to succeed at the lower or court of appeals levels. Could something like this go all the way up to the Supreme Court? Yes, but what we generally think of as the conservative or Republican side of that court all sided strongly in favor of not advancing state actor status against private actors, with the dissenters probably also agreeing with that because there isn't a contract between governments here. So you've got a big problem. If you even manage to make it to the Supreme Court, which I don't think you would, without getting kicked over to California to start out with, with respect to the terms that you've agreed to in the Facebook Terms of Service, even if we assume everything here is correct, it wouldn't surprise me if a court kicked it out pretty early on in any event. So at, at this level, it's probably more of a political move than a legal move. We see that they say it violates the First Amendment due to restricting participation in a public forum and restricting access to information and acts as a prior restraint on free speech and that it chills what people might otherwise say on these platforms, that it restricts the petition, the ability to petition the government for a redress of grievances and that defendant censoring of plaintiff by banning plaintiff from his Facebook account while exercising his free speech was an egregious violation of the First Amendment. Again, we're kind of repeating ourselves a little bit, but that's fine. Zuckerberg is sued in his personal capacity and is liable in damages because he was personally responsible for Facebook's unconstitutional censorship. I don't know that it's very normal to sue somebody in their individual personal capacity for unconstitutional censorship, but that's even harder than probably the whole company in general. And then he's sued in his official capacity as head of Facebook for allowing Facebook to be so coerced and to do this unconstitutional censorship. He's brought on because he's a good name to have on the complaint. Then we see the request for a declaratory judgment that 230 is unconstitutional. Defendants would not have deplatformed plaintiff or similarly situated putative class members, but for the immunity purportedly offered by Section 230. As we said, I don't think that's true. Uh, you could ask, you can't actually look at a multiverse where 230 doesn't exist, but if 230 doesn't exist, it's very difficult to see from what avenue liability actually accrues to these companies. This was Congress acting in advance to prevent other laws from imposing that liability. But without 230, that liability doesn't exist. We can't imagine what states might have passed in the last two decades. So it's unclear whether without 230, Facebook wouldn't have still just used its terms of service to ban people that it saw fit to ban. Section 230C1 and C2 were deliberately enacted by Congress to induce, encourage, and promote social media companies to accomplish an objective the censorship of supposedly objectionable but constitutionally protected speech on the internet that Congress could not constitutionally accomplish itself. Now, again, 
here's that mishmash, right? We talked about the recitals that said, actually, what we really want is diversity of political discourse unfettered by federal or state regulation. But what they've said here is by saying that you aren't liable for removing things, whether or not it's constitutionally protected, is essentially Congress saying, remove things, remove things that we want. The problem is this doesn't tell you what Congress thinks is objectionable. This doesn't tell you what Congress thinks is lascivious or obscene. This says what you think is objectionable. And I think that's pretty broad for a shield like this. We've talked about that, that objectionability is anything. Could be politics, absolutely. Could be religion, could be anything. You might run into problems with other parts of the federal statutory infrastructure, but it's not Congress. This is generally applicable to anybody that runs an interactive computer service. And Congress doesn't say what you should remove or not remove. And the shield itself probably isn't too terribly useful. The law, as it was being created when CDA 230 was passed, was really not fully formed as of yet. It was Congress getting out in front of a potential issue they saw that liability might be imposed, uh, but that really didn't come to fruition because of 230, and we don't know what would have with respect to jurisprudence. 230C2 is unconstitutional on its face that this, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be liable for an action taken to editorialize on its platform in good faith is unconstitutional. I'm sorry, folks. I like to give the benefit of the doubt of these kinds of things. I cannot see it. Uh, obviously, the way it is used could potentially be unconstitutional. That's an as-applied challenge to a statute. They are saying it's as written on its face when it was signed unconstitutional. And I simply can't see that. Section 230C2 on its face, as we just said, as well as C1, when interpreted as described, are also subject to heightened First Amendment scrutiny as content and viewpoint-based regulations authorizing and encouraging large social media companies to censor constitutionally protected speech on the basis of its supposedly objectionable content and viewpoint. Again, we still run into the problem. 230 doesn't say what to ban, so it's a problem in and of itself. Such heightened scrutiny cannot be satisfied here because Section 230 is not narrowly tailored, but rather a blank check issued to private companies holding unprecedented power over the content of public discourse to censor constitutionally protected speech with impunity, resulting in a grave threat to the freedom of expression and to democracy itself. Because the word objectionable in Section 230 is so ill-defined, vague, and capacious that it results in systematic viewpoint-based censorship of political speech rather than merely the protection of children from obscene or sexually explicit speech as well as its original intent, because Section 230 purports to immunize social media companies for censoring speech on the basis of viewpoint, not merely content, because Section 230 has turned a handful of private behemoth companies into ministries of truth and into the arbiters of what information and viewpoints can and cannot be uttered or heard by hundreds of millions of Americans. And because the legitimate interest behind Section 230 could have been served through far less speech restrictive measures. The problem, of course, is that Section 230 doesn't establish what should be banned or not. And it doesn't actually prevent liability from accruing in a manner that is obvious what liability might otherwise be defended against. It's, you know, very political paragraph this. That's why I read it out in full. But while you cannot like Section 230, in fact, I think Republicans and Democrats both have issues with how 230 is used, how much power that gives Facebook and Twitter, that doesn't mean that it is in and of itself unconstitutional as much as it might just be a bad law. There's a difference between being a violation of the Constitution, Facebook acting in violation of the First Amendment, and just being a bad actor that's maybe a bad company you don't want to do business with, or a bad law that was ill thought out and should be revised by the legislature and the Congress that has the power to do so. Then we see them trying to argue that it's a class action. Common questions of law and fact exist as to all members of the class, as we've pointed out. The president himself not only because he was president, but also because he was president of the government that is purported to make Facebook a state actor during a portion of time when the class would be formed, that the president could have formed that state action relationship creates another kind of confluence of weirdness in this particular complaint that then when we finally get to the prayer for relief, it's a blessed ending because we just don't know exactly what every given paragraph is thinking, that there's a lot of different words, narrowly tailored, First Amendment, all the rest of the stuff that they've brought up that doesn't actually lead to something that's easily analyzed, as we have tried to do in this video, because of this mishmash of thoughts. What do they ask for? They ask for damages. They ask to have Facebook ordered to reinstate President Trump and the class members. 
order Facebook to remove its warning labels and misclassifications of content, declaring 230 unconstitutional attorney's fees and penalty damages against Facebook. So end of the day, when you're looking at something like this, there's a bunch of stuff here. It's primarily, in my view, red meat for the folks that are already upset at big technology, whether it's Twitter, YouTube, Google, Facebook, or what have you. The thesis here is something that is really directly discussed by the Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals within the last two years in a fashion that is very, very bad for the complaint itself. And the end result is something that I look at and I say, what you're looking at is really more of a political document than a legal one. And that's unfortunate only insofar as the court system is backed up enough as it is. And this seems to be a little bit more than a publicity stunt, if anything else. So thank you so many people for asking me to discuss this case. I wish it were a little bit more fulsome. I wish it had a little bit more meat on the bones to discuss with you. But hopefully this walkthrough of First Amendment jurisprudence, private actor, state action, and the rest has proved informative. Uh, Certainly, I think a number of people are going to be discussing this case, but I would be surprised if it went very far at all. Thank you for having this discussion. If you want to support the channel, we're talking about technology, business, law, video games, pop culture, and the rest all the time here. We've got a Patreon, Streamlabs, a store, or just subscribing and telling your friends about the channel is so, so much help, and I very much appreciate it. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching, and if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.